Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Monterey Pulp, written by Patrick Whitehurst. The mysterious sleuth of California's central coast returns in a new episode of the Barker Mysteries. Following hot on the heels of his rescue of Carmel's mayor from the ship Wicked Joe in Monterey Noir, Barker once again finds himself in a hot mess of danger and intrigue. Seeking escape from his newfound popularity, the handsome man with no memory of his past travels deep into the Carmel Highlands, only to find adventure has followed him there. From an encounter with the disturbing Easter Bunny Man at Pacific Grove's famous Lover's Point, to a diabolical plot by the homeless denizens of Dead Rent Kingdom, trouble is never very far from Barker and his collection of loyal canines. And mystery has a way of following this strange man who deliberately chooses to live in the margins of society. Barker can make anywhere a home. He is as resourceful as the pack of dogs that are his devoted companions. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Monterey Pulp. Chapter 1. Terror in the Highlands In the dream... Chuck found himself floating alone on a giant block of ice. The waters around him bubbled and spit, melting the ice more and more, for a volcanic eruption beneath him continued to spew its molten contents despite his desperate prayers that it would end. He clawed his way atop the ice block's pinnacle, hoping a passing ship would spy his plight and come to his aid. He was, after all, a greatly respected member of the peninsula editor of one of the most widely read weekly newspapers in town, and carried with him more money than any respectable reward seeker would want or need. His gratitude would more than fatten their wallets, if only they'd save him. The ice block continued to melt. Sleeping at the edge of his tent, Chuck Patachi squirmed and writhed in silent terror. Had he woken at that moment, the middle-aged editor would have realized how the ice block and volcanic turmoil mirrored, in a way, his tumultuous real life. Chuck kept dreaming, however, finding himself closer and closer to the terrifying, boiling sea atop his ever-thinning chunk of ice. The campsite remained silent as a grave. A week ago, Barker set off for the peace and solitude offered by the Carmel Highlands and its wealthy supply of nature. Wild boars scurried about in the dead of night, as did the deer, raccoons, and skunks. Their footsteps and chattering mouths served to remind him of their dominion over the region while he dozed under his fort of old tree branches and dead leaves. During the daylight hours he watched the comings and goings of squirrels as they frolicked and scampered about near his campsite. Closing his eyes to the birds singing in the trees above him, Barker allowed their symphonies to lull him into oblivion. He napped under the sun, added twigs and leaves to his small fort, and ran aimlessly through the forest with his five dogs, who accompanied him on his journey. When food became necessary, Barker set out on the hunt with his pack. Lying in wait long enough usually afforded the muscular man one kind of meal or another. Often he'd settle for the many wild berries that grew in the Carmel Highlands. The dogs, ranging from Zero, the tiny white Shih Tzu, to the large Rottweiler named Dangler, fended for themselves if Barker's choice for the evening's repast fell short of their desires. They were as at home in the forest as Barker himself, 
running like deer alongside their human companion when the whim struck them. They would often journey through the dense forest, leaping over boulders and chasing down crows, until exhaustion forced them to rest. His arrival on this particular camping expedition stemmed from his involvement in a kidnapping over a week ago. Due to his association with a friend who'd been shot and Barker's subsequent rescue of the mayor of Carmel, he became a local celebrity. Barker, not one to appreciate public scrutiny, opted to leave the city until the appreciation for his efforts faded. He knew that it was only a matter of time before the media and those who pay attention to it forgot his deeds and turned their interest elsewhere. He'd return to Monterey then. As a homeless man, Barker felt it odd to be the center of so much attention. He preferred to dwell in obscurity. His dogs, he knew, preferred their free-roaming lifestyle as well, and did not wish to be hampered down by too much attention. He hiked from his small shack, built under the main thoroughfare of Old Fisherman's Wharf, into New Monterey, then made his way through Pacific Grove, past Pebble Beach and Carmel, until the fields and trees near Highway 1 hid his passage from passing motors. Barker left Monterey at nightfall, knowing he could keep well enough away from the headlights and attentions of those out and about to have his vacation kept secret. By keeping to the shadows and traveling back roads, parks, and storm drains, he felt confident his disappearance would remain a mystery. Only Louie and Ellie, the deli owners who had taken it upon themselves to watch after the homeless man, were aware of his plans. As Barker did quite often, he left for the obscurity of the highlands, a place where people were rare. On this particular day, Barker made his way to the Carmel River. He strolled slowly, wearing only a pair of tan corduroy pants, and walked barefoot and quietly along the forest floor. With Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea perched before his face, he read, paying no real attention to the beautiful landscape surrounding him. Dangler, Grizz, Connor, Zero, and the Mastiff puppy Destiny followed happily behind him. This procession lasted only a moment, however. As they approached a heavily vegetated bend in the river, Dangler stopped. A strange scent permeated the Rottweiler's black nostrils, indicating something out of place. He growled, joined a moment later by the other canines, who had also come into possession of the strange scent themselves. Barker knew full well a growl from Dangler meant something important. He scanned the area while slipping his paperback into the waistband of his trousers. Dangler was not one to growl when the fancy struck him, whether at birds or insects, as some dogs were known to do. Destiny, for instance, growled at buzzing flies, but Dangler only responded in this way when something was really wrong. Barker found the cause a moment later. In the distance, covered by low-hanging oak branches and ivy bushes, he spied a red tent erected near the riverbed in a small clearing used by many of the campers who journeyed deep into the highlands. This particular area was the home of two hot springs, one quite close to the river itself and another set further back in the woods. The closer of the two stunk like sulfur, and often had to be shared with many of the snakes and reptiles that also enjoyed the warmth of the hot spring. These hot springs, known to most of the campers in the Monterey Peninsula, became the destination points for camping expeditions. It was no surprise to Barker that other nature lovers would be nearby. He'd seen another tent earlier in the week. In fact, he spied campers coming and going almost every day, but always stayed well enough back to not be seen. 
Dangler's growl warned Barker they were encroaching upon a campsite. Often the campers consisted of young lovers who'd shed their clothes and romp through the thick forest before having sex in the warm springs. He'd spied numerous escapades in the past, but always kept back in order to remain unseen. This time he moved closer to the campsite. He observed no movement around the red tent. Despite this, he could hear moans nearby, a man's moans, and not ones of pleasure, but ones of fear. The water turned a reddish-purple color. The chunk of ice had virtually melted away. Chuck knew his death was imminent. He teetered on what was left of the ice, contemplating how dying would feel, how such intense burning would affect his mind before the blinding white light claimed him. No boats would come to his rescue now, for there was nothing in the horizon save water. It was too late anyway. In mere seconds, the ice would be gone. His footing slipped. The last hunk of ice vanished beneath the surface, and Chuck found himself suspended for a moment before falling. It was weird, that moment of weightlessness, but then it ended, and he fell into the burning volcanic sea. You're all right. You're dreaming. You're dreaming. Barker shook the sleeping stranger. Slowly, laboriously, the man's brown, close-set eyes fluttered open. His body, dressed in a pair of blue jeans and a windbreaker, stretched and stiffened. He sat up, terror-stricken, and opened his eyes wide. Barker released his hold on him and sat back. The two were at the opening to the red tent, sitting in the gravelly rock leading down to the river. Mosquitoes, flies, and bees circled in the warm, sunny air like gray clouds. Barker's five dogs stayed well back and sat or waited in the nearby river. The man had graying, curly black hair and a round, dark-skinned face. His windbreaker hung torn at a zipper, revealing three scratches along his chest. Dried blood and gray bruises surrounded them. The man sat up, shaking the last dregs of the nightmare from his mind. Barker looked around the campsite. He saw a gas range nearby with the remains of baked beans spilled on it. The range lay on its side as if it had been knocked over. An easel lay on its side, too, near the range, beside a rock large enough to sit upon. He saw a small canvas laying in the gravel. Barker reached over to pick it up while the man came to his senses. Who are you? he asked. What are you doing here? I saw your camp as I was heading downriver, Barker informed him. I could see something was wrong, all of this in a state of disarray, and heard moaning. That's when I saw you laying here on the ground and came to help. The painting in Barker's hand showed the nearby landscape when the clouds rolled past last evening. The sky above the painted pines and oaks indicated dark, stormy behavior. The rain only lasted an hour and had not yet returned. The painting, however, appeared incomplete. Entire portions of the work were bare, showing only white canvas. Barker righted the gas range and easel while the man, who had gone silent once again, examined the wounds on his chest. He observed the general state of his campsite in silent shock. He whispered when he spoke, I dreamed of volcanic seas. I was on an iceberg, slipping slowly to my death. Barker stared past the man into the red tent. Sunlight filtered through the fabric, casting a crimson glow on its contents. Two sleeping bags were visible on the floor. At the head of each, he saw a backpack. Both were open their contents laid or spilled out beside them. Two books, marked with green neon flags to certain pages, lay beside one of the sleeping bags. The books were on separation and divorce, entitled respectively How to Get Past the Hate 
and bringing out the baggage. There were various nightclothes laid out as well, crumpled into balls and some folded, plus a wide assortment of bug repellents and an old-fashioned Polaroid camera. He saw an assortment of photographs, which had also spilled from the bag. They were pornographic in nature, showing a woman performing oral sex against a forest backdrop. Other photos showed the man, obviously holding the camera himself, holding his manhood in his free hand while the brunette rubbed her small nipples over his penis. Looking past the photos onto the sleeping bags, Barker noticed patches of dried semen on the fabric. When you woke me up, the man continued, oblivious to the photos, I was just falling to my death. Man, look at the campsite. Barker turned back to the man and watched him silently. Thanks for helping me out, he said. The man zipped up his damaged windbreaker and smiled politely. My name's Chuck Potachi. I'm the editor of Monterey Weekly. Have you heard of it? Yes, I've heard of it. What about you? What's your name? Realizing he was dealing with a newspaper man, Barker decided it best to remain anonymous. This editor would undoubtedly remember his name from the sensationalized events of the recent kidnapping. Hesitantly, Barker replied, My name is John. What do you do, John? The man pushed. Live out here, mostly. Lot of dogs you have. You know, dogs are getting to be the thing these days. You hear anything about the kidnapping of Jimmy Sodfin? He's the mayor of Carmel. I did hear something about it. The man who saved the mayor, he ran with a bunch of dogs. A lot of people like dogs. Barker surveyed the damage around him. What happened here, Mr. Patachi? Something attacked us. I don't know. I don't remember much. My wife and I were sitting here. I was cooking the beans and she was painting. Then, next thing I know, I felt this pain in my chest. My wife screamed, and that was it. Where is your wife? I don't know, John. All I know is you waking me up just now, Patachi replied. Have you seen a woman running around? Did you hear anything? I'm pretty far from here. I didn't hear a thing. You're the only person I've seen today. Barker indicated the disorderly camp with a wave of his hand. Could it have been a bear? He asked the man. Did you see what it was? I don't remember a thing. We'd better find your wife. She could be hurt out there somewhere. Okay, just give me a second to get ready. While Patachi stepped into his tent, Barker sat at the entrance and picked up one of the books. He opened it to one of the marked pages. What to do when they cheat. Those are Sylvia's books, Chuck Patachi told him. We've been having some troubles lately. That's why we came out here, to get away. Thought it might do us some good to be alone for a while. The editor slipped on a backpack, which appeared overburdened with a gray sleeping bag rolled up beneath the framework. I hope she's okay. Here, Mr. Patachi, let me take this sleeping bag off. Barker unfastened the bundle and dropped it inside the tent. A piece of black tarp had been rolled up with the bag, and that, too, Barker discarded to the floor atop the two sleeping bags. You won't need all this to find her. It would just make you lag behind. You're right, I suppose. Though I've always been taught to bring everything with you when you go off hiking in case you get lost. I am probably still a little groggy. I'll help you out. Barker looked into the tent. Do you need those repellents? How about some food or water? The bug repellent belongs to Sylvia. She hates mosquitoes and flies and all that stuff. She lathers herself up in that junk. I swear, whenever we go camping, she ends up bringing an entire pharmacy. How about food and water? I've got both covered in the backpack. 
There's some trail mix and some granola bars and two 12-ounce bottles of spring water. I have also got a first aid kit in here. You might want to fix those cuts on your chest before we head out then, Barker suggested. They look infected. I'll be fine, Patachi answered. I'd like to get started right away. Whatever crashed our camp yesterday could be out there all alone with my wife. How far do you think she could have gotten, John? It depends, Barker shrugged. She got far enough away that she couldn't find her way back to the camp. It could be a mile or more. Before departing, Barker reached into the tent and pulled out a frilly pink bra. He called Connor over, who trotted happily to his feet and held the undergarment to the dog's curious nose. Patachi, grimacing, watched the man's actions. John, excuse me, but what do you think you're doing? That's my wife's bra you're holding. Connor's a good tracker, he replied. I'm letting her get a whiff of your wife's scent, just in case she can smell her out. Couldn't you use one of her socks or something? Barker didn't reply, but threw the frilly garment back into the tent once Connor inhaled a good sample. She set off, following the bending river, with her tail wagging and her plump belly swaying. Barker and the dogs, with Patachi close behind, followed Connor's lead. You know, maybe she's simply out taking pictures, Patachi offered. She likes to do that. Or maybe she's collecting berries. It might not be as bad as we're thinking. If she never abandoned the camp, Mr. Patachi, then why would she have left you unconscious in front of the tent all night? Barker replied. I suppose you've got something there. Patachi tripped over a small stone near the river and cursed. His backpack made the slight misstep worse, serving to propel him on his side. Hearing a clanking noise within the pack when the man hit the ground, Barker sighed. You have something metal in there. What is it? He asked Patachi after the newspaper editor regained his footing. Oh, that. It's one of those military shovels, the kind that folds up and fits in a pack. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. Why bring it with you? We could be out here a long time. The more you burden yourself, the worse it's going to be for you, Barker chided. You really only need the bare necessities. That may be well and good for you, John. A man like you, dressed in a pair of pants, without even any shoes, more than likely knows a thing or two about living off the land. By your tanned skin, I'd say you've been doing this for a while. But me, well, I was taught the Boy Scout life. Always be prepared, that sort of thing. Patachi adjusted the backpack and smiled politely. I'll be fine, don't you worry. The expedition continued on in silence. An hour passed as they made their way through the underbrush. Often they would wade through the river itself whenever they happened upon a shallow area to cross. Barker! The procession came to a stop. The dogs sat, waiting, but for Connor, who continued trekking. Barker turned and stared at his hiking companion. That's the guy's name, Patachi continued. I remember it now. You know, the guy who saved Mayor Sodfin that I was telling you about? It was Barker. Funny name for a guy who lives with a bunch of dogs, you think? Yeah, I guess it is. They stopped to rest hours later. A fine sheen of gloss covered Barker's body as he sat at the river's edge. He doused his arms and legs in the water to cool off. Sweat poured from Patachi's forehead and face. Huffing, he threw his pack to the ground and plopped down. Drops fell from his brows when he knelt forward to retrieve the water bottle from his belongings. Some Boy Scout, eh, John? He laughed, still short of breath. It's been a while since I've gotten much exercise. Even hiking in from the parking lot to this site took me forever. I need one of those stair-climber affairs, I suppose. 
something to work out with when I watch TV. What do you do to work out, John? You look at the peak of physical perfection to me. I don't watch TV. Ah, gotcha. Living out here, I guess you'd get bad reception anyway. Patachi shrugged, losing sight of Barker's meaning, and continued to speak. I've always been one for sitcoms. I just love them. But then I've always been brought up in a pretty strict way. I guess some of the things I couldn't do as a kid, watching sitcoms, for instance, parents refused to let me, said it rotted one's brain, I now do in excess because I couldn't as a kid. Other things I took with me into my adult years. My morals, for instance. You know, John, it's my morals and them alone that makes my weekly newspaper such a popular one. People are crying out for a return to decency. I just happen to have been raised that way. Barker remained silent, listening to an odd sound in the distance, as Chuck continued on about his morals. Listening to him and to the strange noise at the same time, he attempted to figure out the sound. That it was some kind of animal, Barker had no doubt. It sounded like a yawning snort, muffled by the distance, but definitely coming from a set of strong lungs. A man must always make amends for his mistakes. That was one drilled into me since I was a kid. Always do the right thing, John. I made my paper with that motto in mind. Some people may think I'm old-fashioned, but it's who I am. I suppose some women don't like it when I open doors for them, for instance, but that won't make me stop doing it. Do you think women should be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen? Barker asked. The dogs heard the noise and pointed their curious snouts in the direction of the sound. Chuck laughed. No, I'm not that crazy. Women are very important creatures, John, and should be treated with immeasurable respect. But you have to let them do what they want to do. Love between a man and a woman is a sacred trust, marriage even more sacred. Divorce for men like me is impossible. You marry, and you marry but once. There's something out there, Barker commented when Patachi finished. Can't quite tell what it is. With his diatribe now complete, Patachi cocked his head and listened. You're right. I hear something. It's kind of a pig-like sound. What do you think? Wild boar, perhaps. But it could be anything. Patachi grimaced. Do you think a boar crashed the camp? Those scratches on your chest didn't come from a boar, Mr. Patachi. It had to have been something else. Should we follow the sound? I don't think so. Connor is going that way, along the riverbed. Well, then, let's be off. John, you're sure you won't have any water or granola bars before we set off? Thank you, I'm fine. You don't think your dog is... You don't think he's following the scent of whatever that animal is out there, do you? He is a she, and she's following the scent I gave her to follow. But supposing the scent is on that thing now, like if it got her, it may smell like her now if it, if it, we'll go where Connor goes, Mr. Patachi. Barker began again along the path with the dogs near his feet. They were nervous and excited. Zero, the tiny Shih Tzu, stayed close to his ankles. His long white fur was streaked with brown grime due to his refusal to bathe in the river with the other dogs. Destiny, the mastiff puppy, seemed upset. Out of all the dogs, he was the only one aching to chase off into the forest to investigate the strange snorts. He stayed with the rest of the pack, however, knowing his insubordination would not be tolerated. Therefore, rather than be abandoned, he merely whined his indignation to the others. By midday the snorts sounded far off, though still audible to the small expedition as they passed a shallow stretch of the river. 
Barker carried Zero across the channel while Patachi huffed and panted behind him. The little dog shivered in the man's muscular arms. The insects along the river, buzzing and biting in the warmth of the sun, grew large in numbers. Like an invading army, they amassed on every uncovered portion of sweating skin, dive-bombed faces, and generally made a nuisance of themselves. The newspaper editor claimed no end to his misery as they made their way behind Connor. His backpack, he said, felt fifty pounds heavier. Connor seems to be taking a break, Barker noted. The Australian shepherd mix seated her fat body down on a large gray boulder and stared thoughtfully at the men and the dogs behind her. Her tail began to wag. Thank God, Patachi rejoiced. He plunked down his pack and sat. Maybe now I can beat some of these mosquitoes and flies off me. He swatted his arms and legs vigorously. After a moment, he looked up at Barker. John, do you still hear something? I did a moment ago. It is the same animal, whatever it is. I think I also heard a deer, a buck maybe. You take it easy for a moment. I'm going to hike ahead a little. Maybe you should splash some water on you to cool down. That will help keep the bugs off. I should have brought Sylvia's repellent is what I should have done. I'll only be a moment. Here, John. Patachi rummaged through his pack, then handed Barker a sandwich bag with three granola bars inside. Why don't you eat something while we're taking a break? You haven't eaten all day. I'd prefer trail mix, Mr. Patachi. You have some in there, I believe. These are better for hiking, John. Trust me. Barker looked at the granola bars. He could see the name Sylvia written on the bag. If this is your wife's, Mr. Patachi, I couldn't... Oh, please do, John. She wouldn't mind. In fact, she doesn't seem to like them anymore. I brought these for the trip, but she said she didn't really like the taste of them. You know how it is. You eat them too often, and then, next thing you know, just smelling them makes you sick. I thought she loved the things. They'll just go to waste if you don't eat them. Barker slipped the bag into his corduroys and made his way up the river. They were near a bend, where the water surged around a large outcropping of gray stones. The boulders were close together, creating a small pool of trapped water. Barker waded into the cool river, batting at the congregation of insects swarming over him. He proceeded a short distance and stopped. At this point, the bugs were sparse. He took a deep breath, enjoying the momentary calm, and pulled the bag from his pocket. A quick snack did sound like a good idea. Later, after having his fill of the serenity around him, Barker turned around to find his hiking partner standing behind him. Patachi, wearing his pack and holding the shovel in his hand, appeared slightly nervous. The five dogs perched lazily on the boulders behind him. I didn't hear you coming up behind me, Mr. Patachi, Barker said. The noise of the river at this spot, I'd imagine, smiled the newspaper editor. I didn't see you come back, so I got a little worried. Everything okay? Fine. Good, good. You know, John, I could have sworn I heard those snorts again. They sounded even closer this time. You don't think we're being followed, do you? I don't think so. What's with the shovel, Mr. Patachi? Oh, Patachi seemed surprised that he held it in his hands. I guess, being a trifle nervous, I decided I needed a little protection. You were never attacked by an animal, were you? What's that? Patachi appeared shocked. What did you say? You made it up. You lied. John, don't say that. How could you think that? The scratch is on my chest. How could I make that up? They're real, but no animal made them. Your wife did. You have to be kidding. My wife? 
How could she? Why would she? You tried to kill her, and in self-defense, she scratched you. You fell back and hit your head on the rock. No animal chased her off. You did. Patachi flushed with anger. I never! How can you say these things? In response, Barker reached forward and curled his tanned fingers around the editor's windbreaker. With a firm tug, he ripped the jacket open. The cuts were visible, red and swollen, with a dark, grayish liquid coming from the wounds. Heavy beads of perspiration clung to his milky skin. You see, John, I wasn't lying to you. You were. That dark gray liquid, it's melting in your sweat. I thought those were bruises this morning when I saw them, but it's paint, paint from your wife's hands. She was painting the storm clouds with gray paint when you attacked her. You're insane, Patachi cried. The two of you came out here to get away, but there was more to it than that. She was going to leave you, Mr. Patachi, wasn't she? Because she discovered you were cheating on her. The books on separation and divorce were on her side of the tent, with her things, and one of the books was marked to a chapter entitled, What to Do When They Cheat. But you could not tolerate a divorce. You told me yourself that divorce is something men like you don't do. You had your reputation to think of, the newspaper and what this kind of scandal would do to it. You are correct there, John. Men like me don't get divorces. But men like you can kill, Barker added. The third sleeping bag, the plastic tarp, the shovel you're holding. You were going to kill her. That was your plan from the beginning. You knew she wanted a divorce, so you brought her out here to kill her. Then you were going to put the body in the sleeping bag, wrap it in the tarp, and bury it using your shovel. How dare you make these accusations, John? I have been nothing but nice to you since we left. I even shared my food with you. It's true I owe you for helping me out when you found me unconscious, but you've crossed the line. The watercolor paint on your cuts proves my theory. With all your talk of decency, you are the one crossing the line. Barker let go of the man's jacket, leaving Patachi to straighten himself up. If anything, the only decency you've shown is by giving me some of your food. For that, I thank you. The editor spat. The granola bars, yes. I hope you enjoyed them, John. You see, Sylvia used to love them, as I believe I told you. I thought she still did. So I had my brother mix up a little concoction for me. He's a pharmacist. I stuck his devious little mixture in the bars. Don't ask me what he put in there. I didn't bother to ask. Only I know it would have done the job and then some had she eaten them. Of course, she decides to hold a small strike against them. Tells me she stopped munching on the things weeks ago. So I resorted to more physical measures. I waited for her to start painting and snuck up behind her. Funny thing, how fear can bring out crazy strength in people. She knocked me back and took off into the woods. Lucky for me you came along with that dog that could help me track her scent. I can, after all, finish the job. Only now with the pretense of some wild beast having been involved. You won't be finishing the job now or ever, Barker informed him. I think I will. You see, the poison should be attacking your immune system by now. You'll be getting weak any moment. Surely, though in every way you're physically superior to me, I can take on a man whose muscles and veins have turned to pudding. Patachi laughed, relishing his victory. You remember my dream? The ice and the boiling volcanic sea? Well, I've found my way to safety now, John. Wouldn't you agree? No, I wouldn't. Barker pulled the sandwich bag from his pocket. The three granola bars were still inside. I'd say you were still on that iceberg. Patachi shrank back in fear. But I thought you ate them, he squeaked. You said, 
I considered the possibility you had some method to do your wife in besides mere physical violence. When you tried to get me to eat them, I wondered if the granola bars were poisoned. You had trail mix as well, but you only wanted me to eat the granola bars. I am hungry, Mr. Patachi, but I would never eat anything you gave me. At that moment, Patachi tightened his grip on the shovel, about to attack. Barker grabbed the man by the wrist and neck and, with a forceful jerk, swung the smaller man over his shoulders. Patachi plunged, backpack and all, into the Carmel River. He burst to the surface, screaming incoherently, submerged to his waist. The dogs, growling and barking, gathered on the boulders at the river's edge. Barker held up his hand to stay any further actions from them, and the dogs obeyed, though not without a few dissatisfied grunts. Leave here, Mr. Patachi. Do not look back. Leave now, Barker commanded. You have five minutes before I set the dogs on you. That was enough for Chuck Patachi, who began to protest, but realized his predicament and sloshed to the far side of the river. Within moments he vanished into the forest. Barker waited until he was sure the would-be murderer had gone. Still standing in the silent pool of water near the large boulders, Barker turned around and faced the huge stones. He said, You can come out now. Silence. Your husband has left. It's safe. Slowly, hesitatingly, a figure appeared in the nook of the boulder. The woman wore a pair of damp shorts and a green cable-knit sweater. Leaves and small twigs stuck from her matted brown hair. Frightened and shaking, the woman slowly approached Barker. The dogs came to investigate, their tails wagging, and sniffed the woman from their respective perches. Dark circles hung under the woman's attractive hazel eyes. Her lips were cracked and dry, but otherwise she appeared in good condition. Barker recalled the sexy photographs, but decided not to mention having seen them. I heard every word you said, said Sylvia Patachi. It happened just the way you guessed. But how did you know so much? How did you know where I was? I found your husband knocked out at the campsite. The rest fell into place after that, when I saw the books and the third sleeping bag. I knew something happened that no animal could have caused. Bears, boars, mountain lions, they will not generally leave a perfectly good pot of baked beans laying about. I knew there was more to the story. Oh, bless you, John. You've saved my life. I didn't know what to do. Honestly, I was thinking I would just stay hidden behind that big rock until I died. Sylvia threw her arms around the bare-chested man and hugged him tightly. Thank you so much. Have you ever been called a hero before? Well, you're my hero. But how did you know where I was? I was beginning to think you knew I was here. Did you do it for my benefit? Barker nodded. I did. I wanted you to know that I was aware of the truth before you came out. And it wasn't I who found you. It was Connor here. With that, the canine tracker made her presence known to the woman and exposed her fat belly on the rock so it could be scratched. Sylvia, with a laugh, responded with generous affection. Did she come to the exact rock? Sylvia asked. You're a good puppy, aren't you? She spoke to the enamored prostrate canine. Not exactly, Barker said. I found the nook. She simply led me to the right outcropping. I told Mr. Patachi we were only taking a break so he wouldn't think anything, while in reality I knew Connor had found you. I was going to say something to you then, but your husband showed up with the shovel in his hands. How did you know which nook, John? No bugs, he replied. Everywhere else they're swarming, but there were fewer in that one nook. Thanks, no doubt, to that repellent I see in your pocket. Even as terror-stricken as I was, I had to use it. I hate bugs. I just hate them. Well, 
I'm glad you did, or I might have been looking a while longer. Come on. Barker helped the woman up out of the water. We'll head back to your camp. I'll hike out with you. What about Chuck? Sylvia asked, somewhat sheepishly. What's going to happen to him? Don't worry about him, Sylvia. Barker stopped and stared off into the woods where the editor had made his hasty retreat. For him, this is just the tip of the iceberg. He handed her the bag of granola bars. You bring those to the police when you get back. They'll be interested to see what's inside. Luckily, you don't have a taste for them anymore. You mean they're... they're poisoned? Looking faint, Sylvia supported herself against Barker as they made their way down the river. My God! He kept trying to get me to eat them. He kept offering them to me. I don't believe this. We were trying to work things out. He even slept with me. I hope a bear eats him. I hope he gets his arms ripped out. Barker patted Connor atop her head. It would be only decent. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Monterey Pulp. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.